Welcome to British Murders, a true crime podcast with a focus on British murder cases. My name's Stuart Blues, and I'm excited for you to join me on this journey of morbid discovery. I'm by no means an expert on the subjects of homicide and serial killers. However, I have always had a sick fascination with them. Together, we will learn about some of the lesser-known British murderers, as well as glimpsing occasionally at some of the more notorious ones. The bite-sized presentation of this podcast is intentional, as we look to cover an overview of the respective timelines of each case succinctly. Hello and welcome to the third season of British Murders. I appreciate you taking the time out to listen to the show. If you're a returning listener, welcome back. Cheers for sticking with me. If this is your first time listening to the show, thanks for giving it a chance and I hope that you'll now stay here. Our story today is set in the medieval city of Peterborough in the east of England. With a population of around 203,000 as of 2018, Peterborough is best known for its ancient cathedral, which dates back to the early 12th century. Prior to that, a monastery stood on the site where today's cathedral stood until the fire of 1116 destroyed it. I always like to find out some historical information about the towns and cities where the crimes I cover take place, and I must say I had a bit of fun with Peterborough. First of all, it seems to be one of those English towns that nobody can quite pinpoint on a map, or even tell you where it is. Truth been told, I had to check Google Maps to find out where it is. Apparently what most Peterborough residents do when asked where they live is reply with either Cambridge or just north of London. It's only around an hour away from England's capital city by train so it's sometimes just easier to say you live near London than to get into some sort of geographical game of charades. I'll just share this with you before we get into the subject of this episode. Ilivehere.co.uk published a list in 2019 of the 10 worst places to live in England and I'm sorry to say... Peterborough came in at number one. I can't say much though because my hometown Huddersfield came in at number two. Let me now introduce you to the subject of this episode. Her full name is Joanna Christine Dennehy. She was born in August 1982 in St Albans, Hertfordshire but was raised in the neighbouring town of Harpenden. We'll first start by reviewing her childhood and young adult life before we get to the crimes she later committed after settling in Peterborough. Her upbringing was nothing out of the ordinary. She had the benefit of being raised by a good and complete family. Her parents, Kevin and Kathleen, held jobs as a security guard and a shop manager, respectively. They were strict with Joanna and her younger sister, Maria, but not to the point where it became overbearing. Joanna has made claims that she was abused as a child, but no evidence exists which back up those claims. Her friends and family have all said that she was treated very well. Joanna and Maria shared a bunk bed and even invented their own secret language. That's how close they were as kids. Doesn't sound too bad so far. They raised her with the best intentions as any family with children would. I didn't find any information which indicates that Joanna was the victim of any form of abuse, whether it be sexual, physical, emotional or mental. She was always encouraged to pursue her dreams by her parents, but despite such support, Joanna regularly found herself being sent home from school due to either being caught drinking alcohol or attending school whilst intoxicated. She went on to spend a lot of her life in and out of various prisons. The sentences were often short and often the crimes committed were petty, but it still will have had an effect on her future behaviour and personality. A more serious conviction came in 2012 when Joanna was found to be in possession of razor blades whilst out in public. Now for some context, section 139 of the Criminal Justice Act of 1988 prohibits the possession of an article with a blade or point in a public place in the UK. 
Later in 2012, Joanna committed an offence of assault occasioning actual bodily harm. This is more commonly known in the UK as actual bodily harm or simply ABH. This offence is the result of an individual intentionally or recklessly assaulting another individual, thereby causing actual bodily harm. Joanna's wholesome upbringing clearly wasn't enough to prevent her from delving into the world of crime. Let's take a second now to try and understand why that is. I've spoken a lot about nature versus nurture on this podcast. It's forever an ongoing debate about what causes serial killers and murderers to commit such heinous crimes. Now the nature side indicates that some people are just born evil, whereas the nurture side suggests that external environmental factors cause such a change in the individual's personality that they cause the crimes to occur almost by proxy. In the case of Joanna, so far we can pretty much rule out the nurture factor. I hate to use this word, but her childhood seemed completely normal. So therefore Joanna must have been born evil, right? Well, it's a little more complicated than that. I'll briefly jump ahead a bit in our timeline to explain why. Joanna was subject to a psychiatric evaluation on October 26, 2013 by Dr. Frank Farnham. Dr. Farnham revealed that Joanna suffers from a variety of serious mental illnesses. She firstly suffers from a severe emotionally unstable personality disorder. She also suffers from an antisocial personality disorder, paraphilia sadomasochism and a psychopathic disorder. If, like me, you've never heard of paraphilia sadomasochism, it's a preference for sexual activity involving the infliction of pain or humiliation or bondage. Joanna's psychopathic disorder was showcased by a superficial charm, pathological lying, a significant lack of remorse and an extreme disregard for the health and safety of other people. This isn't me trying to justify any of the crimes I'm about to tell you, neither is it me making excuses for them. I'm simply giving you the fullest picture of her background that I can. I'll leave all the judgement to you. If we jump back now to 1997 when Joanna was just 15, she met a man who would soon become her first long-term partner. John Trina was out walking his dog, a German shepherd, when Joanna made a bold move and approached him. She expressed her love for dogs and the two hit it off instantly. John Trina was 21 by the way, 6 years older than Joanna. The legal age of consent in the UK is 16 years old and has been ever since the Criminal Law Amendment Act 1885 commenced on August 14th 1885. Prior to that the age of consent was 13 if you were wondering. It's understandable then that Joanna's parents weren't the best pleased when they found out about their 15 year old daughter's new relationship with a 21 year old man. Kevin and Kathleen took the decision to kick Joanna out of the family home when they realised she would not end the relationship. That's probably the worst thing they could have done as it only pushed Joanna and John closer together. John would later claim that he didn't sleep with Joanna until she was 16 but only he and Joanna know the truth in that regard. If that is in fact true, when Joanna did turn 16, they wasted no time because she gave birth to their first child, Sheanne, in 1999 when Joanna was just 17. The young family lived in Milton Keynes which is 27 miles northwest of Harpenden. According to Sheanne, Joanna was a really wholesome mum at first. She would often spend her spare time reading or going on long walks. She would also get stuck in with the activities Sheanne and her friends would get up to whenever they came to the house. Paper mache in particular was one activity noted by Sheanne as something Joanna really enjoyed doing with the girls. Joanna was just a big kid according to her daughter and some of those earlier memories are still cherished by Sheanne to this day. But sadly that side of Joanna didn't last. As she grew into her adult years, remember she was only young when she had Sheanne, She started abusing both alcohol and drugs whilst developing a regular habit of self-harm. 
On top of all that, her promiscuous side was expressed by way of sleeping with several men whenever she felt like it. This darker side to Joanna led to John taking Sheehan and moving away to Kings Lynn, a town located 85 miles northwest of Milton Keynes in the eastern county of Norfolk. John claims that Joanna had slept with their neighbour and had an increasingly bad cocaine habit. The couple spent 18 months apart, during which time Joanna spent some time both in prison and on a psychiatric ward. The couple eventually rekindled their relationship and the family moved 30 miles southwest to the town of Wisbeach. Three years later, Joanna and John welcomed their second child to the world. Sadly, that didn't make things any better, as it often doesn't. Joanna's behaviour, if anything, only got worse. Her self-harm went to new lengths when she started cutting herself all over with knives and razor blades. She would cut all up her arms, her stomach, even her neck. Do you know how people normally have cereal or a bit of toast for breakfast? Well, Joanna was downing full bottles of import-strength lager for hers. She essentially turned into an alcoholic at this point, and it wasn't unusual for her to drink two full bottles of spirits each day, with her liquor of choice typically being vodka. At one point, after being out drinking all day, Joanna organised to have a male visit the house and threaten John, which he did. Sheehan was five years old at the time, so you can only imagine how scary that must have been for her, let alone for John. The final straw in their tumultuous relationship came a few years later when Joanna pulled a six-inch blade on John and stabbed the carpet in anger. Not feeling it was a safe environment for his kids anymore, John left once more and took his kids with him to Glossop, a town located 130-plus miles northwest of Wisbeach in the county of Derbyshire. Sheehan was nine years old. So now's the time for us to take a closer look and break down the crimes committed by Joanna. After her family left her, Joanna moved around and lived in a variety of house shares with other individuals. On March 29th, 2013, Joanna was living in a property on 11 Rolleston Garth in Peterborough. It was there where she lured 31-year-old Polish national Lukas Slabosowski before she killed him. I hope I'm saying that right. Please let me know if I'm not. Lucas had been in the UK since 2005 and only met Joanna a few days before she decided to end his life. Using a charm to her advantage, Joanna had led Lucas to believe the pair were in a relationship. Lucas even sent a text message to one of his friends to explain how happy he was now that he'd met such a wonderful woman. If only he knew. Upon his arrival at 11 Rolleston Garth, Lucas was stabbed in the heart by Joanna. It only took one strike to kill him. Not knowing what to do now the deed was done and she had a body to get rid of, Joanna decided to place Lucas's body inside a wheelie bin until she could figure out what her next move was. If you listen to the seventh episode of season two, you recall that Dale Tarbox did the same thing with Susan Howells' body after he killed her. I bet the creator of wheelie bins never envisaged them being used as a temporary storage facility for murder victims. Joanna's powers of persuasion with men really showed with what she did next. She went to a landlord, a 48-year-old man named Kevin Lee, and asked to borrow some money. Kevin lent it to her, and Joanna used it to purchase a car, a Vauxhall Astra. You might think, why did a landlord lend her such a substantial amount of money? So here's the story with Kevin and Joanna. Despite being married with children, Kevin was besotted with Joanna. The two were having regular sex, and it wasn't vanilla sex either. It had been described as extreme, which makes sense given Joanna's sadomasochistic tendencies. Joanna's pathological lying and manipulation were immediately put to use when she first met Kevin. She told him she'd been a victim of child abuse in her youth and as a result she'd killed her father and gone to prison. Now technically speaking, the part about going to prison wasn't a lie, just the rest of it was. 
Kevin had then not only let Joanna live in some of his rental properties, but had also provided her with a job in his property firm. Anyway, now that Joanna had a means of transporting Lucas's body somewhere, she needed someone to take her to pick up the vehicle. Allow me to introduce her first accessory. The aptly named Gary Stretch. A giant of a man. He stands at a very inconspicuous 7 foot 3 inches tall. The pair travelled together by taxi a day or two after Lucas's murder and collected the Vauxhall Astra. Using Gary's knowledge of the local area, the pair scouted for a place to dump Lucas's body. They settled on Thorny Dyke, a village about 8 miles east of Peterborough City Centre. Once she'd gotten rid of her first victim's body, Joanne laid low for all of 10 days. Her sadistic lust for blood led to her killing again on March 29th, 2013. It was Good Friday. The location this time was 38 Byfield, another of Kevin's properties. 56-year-old Royal Navy veteran John Chapman was violently stabbed to death by Joanna in his own bedsit within the property. A bedsit is basically a one-room apartment comparable to a studio apartment. Instead of one strike to the heart, this time Joanna stabbed her victim five times in the chest and once in the neck, slicing Chapman's carotid artery. One of the chest wounds was struck with such force that it penetrated his sternum or breastbone. Toxicology reports revealed that Chapman's blood alcohol level was four times the legal limit for driving. He also had no defence wounds and may even have been asleep when the attack took place. It likely happened so fast that he was dead before he even had a chance to wake up. Joanna later stated that she killed Chapman because he had made his way into Joanna's bathroom while she was bathing and refused to leave. That claim, as with a lot of things that Joanna says, is unsubstantiated. Bizarrely, a fellow resident of the building named Leslie Layton took a photo of Chapman's body at 7.32am on the day he was killed. A photo of his dead body. It was subsequently deleted, but that means nothing when compared to technology available these days, and it was soon recovered by forensic analysts. Remember Kevin Lee? Joanna's landlord and sexual admirer? Well, he was unfortunately her next victim. Joanna actually confided in Kevin and explained that she had killed Chapman later that same day. Joanna alleges that Kevin then saw the body of Chapman and proceeded to kill him to cover her tracks, but again, that is likely a lie. I say that because Kevin was killed at the same place Lucas was, 11 Rolleston Garth, rather than at 38 Byfield where John Chapman was killed. The way she lured Kevin to the property was by sexually enticing him. She told him she wanted him to come over so that she could dress him up and rape him. Yeah, you heard that right. That, I imagine, was the tip of the iceberg when it came to Joanna's sexual fantasies. Upon his arrival at 11 Rolleston Garth, Kevin was stabbed five times in the chest. Both of his lungs were penetrated, as was his heart. Unlike with John Chapman, a post-mortem of Kevin's body later revealed defensive wounds to his hands, indicating he had put up some form of a fight. Joanna and her two accomplices Gary Stretch and Leslie Layton then proceeded to dump Kevin's body in another remote village on the outskirts of Peterborough called Newborough. If you thought simply dumping a victim's body in a ditch was bad enough then you'll be pleased to know you're not on the same wavelength as Joanna. She opted to dress Kevin's body in one of her own black sequin dresses and position the body on all fours with his buttocks up in the air and exposed. She'd even gone to the trouble of lubricating an inanimate object and sticking it in his anus to make it look like his death was caused by a sexual encounter that had gone horribly wrong. I mean, the level of disrespect is off the chart. The trio then set fire to Kevin's car, Ford Mondeo, in a final attempt to eradicate any evidence. 
What they didn't realise is that when Leslie stopped at a petrol station, her image was caught on CCTV, as was the licence of Kevin's car. She didn't fill up the car at the petrol station, she just purchased some petrol which was the accelerant later used to torch the car. The burnt out car was left on a barren area of land in Yaxley, a village located 10 miles south of Nubra. Joanna and Gary were allowed to stay with their friend Robert Moore, who provided them with food and shelter whilst they were on the run. Robert's role in this story is relatively minor, however I highlight him here to reinforce how much of a hold Joanna had over all these men. A week or so later, in early April, Joanna attacked two more men on the streets of Hereford in an attempt to carry on her killing spree. Whilst being driven by Gary Stretch, really innocuous, this big guy, the pair spotted 63-year-old Robin Bereza walking his dog on the pavement. Sneaking up on him from behind, Joanna stabbed Robin in the back and the right arm. Not knowing what the hell had just happened, Robin turned round and said, what on earth are you doing? Cold as ever, Joanna simply said, I want to hurt you. I'm going to fucking kill you. Terrifying. Luckily, Robin managed to get away after giving her a few swift kicks. His wounds, however, caused him severe internal damage. When Joanna had stabbed him in the back, the force was such that not only did it bruise his lung and fracture a rib, but the knife also penetrated his chest wall and caused a hemoneumothorax. For any non-doctors listening, a hemoneumothorax is a rare combination of two medical conditions. One, a pneumothorax, more commonly known as a collapsed lung, which happens when there is air outside the lung in the space between the lung and the chest cavity. And two, a hemothorax occurs when there is blood in that same space. I say it's rare because, according to Healthline, only about 5% of patients with pneumothorax experience hemothorax at the same time. The wound on Robin's right arm was towards the top, and as a result it shattered his shoulder blade. Later that same day, Joanna found another dog walker to attack. This time it was 56-year-old John Rogers. As with Robin, she first stabbed Rogers in the back, but this time she carried on frantically stabbing John all over his chest, abdomen, his back as he tried to get away. So just imagine you've been stabbed in the back, you turn around to see what the hell is going on, and there's some crazy woman coming at you with a knife, just like psycho style, and he's backing away and probably falling down, bless him, and she's just f stabbing him, stab, stab, stabbing him awful it must have been terrifying he had 30 stab wounds in the end all over his body and she left him for dead both of his lungs collapsed nine of his ribs had been fractured his abdomen had been cut deep enough for his bowels to be exposed he also suffered defensive wounds to his hands which left him unable to play his beloved guitar ever again as a final insult joanna walked off with his dog the police had already been called by an onlooker during the attack and they arrested her within minutes of her leaving Rogers for dead. Joanna was sentenced at the Old Bailey on February 28th, 2014 by Mr Justice Spencer. She was convicted of the following. Two counts of attempted murder. For this she was sentenced to life imprisonment. Three counts of murder. For that she was also sentenced to life imprisonment. And three counts of preventing the lawful burial of a body. For that she was sentenced to 12 years in prison. Unlike most killers, Joanna pleaded guilty from the start and showed absolutely no remorse for what she'd done. In the end, Mr Justice Spencer sentenced Joanna Dennehy to a whole life order, which means she'll never be allowed out of prison and her minimum term is the rest of her life. For some context, she's only the third woman in the UK to have ever been given a whole life order. The first was Moore's murderer Myra Hindley, whose story I covered in the season one special, and the second was Rose West. 
In his closing statement, Mr Justice Spencer stated, You're a cruel, calculating, selfish and manipulative serial killer. Joanna herself has said that she has a lack of respect for human life. She was sent to HMP Bronzefield, a female-only prison located in Middlesex, southeast England, to serve out her sentence. On to Joanna's accomplices now. Gary Stretch, the big guy, was convicted of two counts of attempted murder and preventing the burial of three people. For that, he was given a life sentence with a minimum term of 19 years. Leslie Layton, who took the picture of John Chapman's dead body, was convicted of preventing the lawful burial of two murder victims and perverting the course of justice. She was sentenced to 14 years in prison. Robert Moore, who took in Gary and Joanna when they were on the run, he was convicted of assisting an offender and was sentenced to serve three years in prison. Joanna actually made plans to escape prison in May 2016, but she'd written the plans down and they were found in her cell. Her plan was <laughs> to kill a female officer, chop off her finger, take the officer's keys, and escape by using the severed finger to trick the biometric fingerprint security system. Something straight out of a Terminator film. Can you imagine? Just seeing a prisoner wandering around with one digit finger, just pressing the, the machines to get out. How far could she have got? Ridiculous. Joanna was subsequently given an escape suit to wear, which isn't as fancy as it sounds. It's not like a straitjacket or anything. It's simply a brightly coloured prison uniform that helps anyone who's on an escape list stand out and makes them easier to spot if they do try to escape. Following that, she was placed in solitary confinement for a couple of years, and she even filed a high court claim in which she stated that her human rights had been violated while she was in solitary. Her claim was rejected. She's recently started a relationship with 36-year-old Haley Palmer, whom she met in prison prior to her release in April 2021. The pair plan to get married, and Haley is currently seeking legal advice in relation to this. Haley's family are gravely concerned about this marriage, as they feel it will either end with Joanna harming Haley or Haley harming herself. The worries are substantiated because there was a time when Joanna and Haley were in prison together, and they did sort of a suicide pact to try to kill it. Well, they tried to kill themselves in a cell and they were found with blood everywhere. Joanna, you know, Haley went to slice, slice her wrists and Joanna went straight for the neck. Crazy. But Haley has apparently changed her surname to Dennehy. So it's more than likely that the marriage will go ahead at some point. This was interesting. On June 13th, 2019, Joanna was moved to HMP Low Newton, which is the highest security prison for women in the UK. This is where infamous serial killer Rose West was imprisoned. Rose West, as I said earlier, was the second woman to be given a whole life order in the UK. Joanna made death threats to Rose on the day she arrived and told officers that she was going to fucking kill Rose West. West was subsequently moved from HMP Low Newton in County Durham to Newhall Jail in Wakefield, which is in West Yorkshire. That's on the same day that Joanna arrived and it was for her own safety. I'll leave you now with a frightening quote from Joanna. After telling a psychiatrist that she saw the killings as some kind of fetish, she was asked why she killed her victims. Joanna replied, To see if I was as cold as I thought I was. Then it got Moorish, and I got a taste for it. Wow. <sighs> That's the story of British murderer Joanna Dennehy. If you want to hear more on British murders, you can sign up to all my socials, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, YouTube, obviously. I've got merchandise now, the link's in the description, that's at Teespring, great website, really comfy clothes, 
You can support me on Patreon. My newest member is Henriette Cole. Thanks for the sub. You get ad-free episodes. You get them a day earlier. There's a few perks on there. And if you want to donate on a one-off basis, go to buymeacoffee.com slash Britishmurders. The link in the description. If you want case suggestions, if you want me to cover something, you can email me, britishmurderspodcast at gmail.com. Contact me on social media, whichever you prefer. And if you want to leave me a review, you can do that on iTunes, Podchaser, I think. Um, They do increase the show's exposure, so they are greatly appreciated if you want to do that. Thank you. Thanks to everyone who's left a review as well. But for now, I've been Stuart Blues. This has been British Murders. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time. Cheerio.